everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Costello. Our guest today is Jesse Greif, the Chief Operating Officer of OneKronos. OneKronos pioneered the technology to run a unique kind of optimization in electronic trading markets. Their approach draws from Nobel Prize-winning auction techniques and solves for execution quality outcomes rather than just speed. Prior to OneKronos, Jesse spent 13 years at Goldman Sachs, where he most recently was a vice president. He earned an MBA from the Wharton School and his bachelor's degree from Northeastern University. In today's episode, we discuss how OneKronos' optimization and auction format works, the SEC's retail investor proposal, how OneKronos approached getting both the supply and demand side of the market to launch their trading venue, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Jesse, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Kaylee. It's great to have you here. To start with, can you give us a bit of a brief overview of your career to date and how you ended up leading a FinTech? Sure. I first want to start by saying how cool this is to record in an actual studio. Um, So I I, I grew up at Goldman Sachs, was there for a long time, a little over 13 years. Um, I, I started there. Uh, in equity derivatives um, operations, effectively as a contract negotiator. Um, Over-the-counter derivatives at the time were privately negotiated transactions. And um, a salesperson and a trader on the opposite side would negotiate the economic terms of a transaction. And then there was a whole sleeve of non-economic terms that would have to be finalized in order for the the risk affiliated with that trade to be secured. An example of that might be if the bank is hedging on some exchange, they need to know that if the exchange, like let's say it's a derivative on an Indian company, if the SEBI regulators in India say that you need a special license to trade or transact on this exchange, and that breaks the hedge transaction that the bank has, the bank needs the authority and the ability contractually to break that trade with the end uh, hedge fund or institutional user or trader. So I started out as a negotiator and I grew to manage a few groups that were in different parts of the equity derivative operations ecosystem. And uh, in short, at a certain point, I went and got my MBA at the Wharton School and, uh, and came back to Goldman and uh, moved into a what we called um, management and strategy or business and strategy, which was effectively an in-house consulting group um, that would focus on uh, strategic development for our trading businesses. And then I was given a unique opportunity to, um, to be more dedicated as a COO of what we called our systematic market-making business at Goldman, which was which represented a handful of, of um, electronic trading businesses and kind of uh, tools within the bank that were ripe for um, automation, which was a very unique opportunity to kind of pivot from the equity derivative space, which was a slower, uh, you know, uh, structured transaction business to a much faster uh, electronic trading businesses where the sensitivities are different and the customers are different and and the forms of kind of measuring your counterparty and holding your counterparty accountable were were unique. And then I left to join OneKronos and uh, bring this product from kind of where it was, which was kind of a um, a decently developed prototype to actually 
product market fit and ultimately launch and, and to the point that we are now. So I know one Kronos is building and operating matching engines in capital markets, and the technology you've built runs a unique kind of optimization in a periodic auction format. We'll get to the optimization part in a minute, but for the non-traders listening, can you start with a quick overview of how a traditional market works and how this differs from the periodic auctions that one Kronos uses? Sure. So it's a really good question. I, I think that uh, there's not a ton of transparency in, in this space and the supply chain is somewhat convoluted to, to the folks that wouldn't directly be in it and transacting in it. Effectively, the way that trading generally works now is an institutional trader uh, has an order that they send to their bank or their broker. And the bank or the broker usually divides that what's called a parent order into many different child orders. And it thoughtfully spaces that out over a prescribed amount of time. And it delegates responsibility to something called a router. And that router sends orders to many different trading venues, many different uh, exchanges and pools of liquidity. There are about 50 different trading venues in the US. Many listeners would likely be familiar with New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. Those are two of the approximately 50 that are out there. The way that most exchanges work is that they have to make a really tough decision to say, okay, I have a buyer for let's say 100 shares. I have two sellers who are both willing to sell 100 shares. How do I figure out who gets to be that seller, right? Is it the person that's, you know, taller? Is it the person that has more money? Is it the person that went to Wharton? Like, what's the, what, how do I, what's my algorithm for figuring this out? And the way that this has evolved is that, you know, they've taken this concept of first in, first out as a pretty fair way to allocate. Uh, it's a pretty fair method of accounting. And so the person that gets there first gets to be that seller in the event of a situation like that. We call that an imbalance. So how do we resolve that imbalance? We resolve it by uh, if multiple people are there at the same price, the person or the machine uh, or the thing that's there first gets to affect that sale. Now, just like in accounting, there are other methods of accounting, right? There's last and first out. There's max loss. And so in the context of equity trading, the dominant format has been this first in, first out methodology. So first in, first out over time has caused some unique incentives to exist, the obvious one being an incentive to be fast because you want to be the one that's able to be selected in the case of that imbalance scenario. So that has encouraged a lot of investment in being fast to instruct orders, being fast to cancel orders, being fast to have market data that you can react to very quickly and faster than your competitors. And it, there, there's all sorts of other nuances, like for example, being co-located within a data center so that literally the physics, the, t the time of flight between your decision engine and the, uh, the, the matching engine, like where the actual software is located, the exchange software is very, very short. So literally the, the, the time of flight through that optical fiber cable is very short. So it's an interesting thing, and you can imagine as I'm saying this, like this is an interesting incentive mechanism because it sounds pretty distant from investors and traders and end users, right? Like whomever are the 
and beneficiaries of these, whether there's whether they're retirees or pensioners or limited partners or whomever, like why do they have to be yanked into this ecosystem that really incentivizes being fast? And you know, it's a longer conversation, but basically the cost to be fast continues to go up and it continues to go up, you know, quite a bit. So how one Kronos is different is that we take speed out of the equation. We've created an environment to compete on the quality of liquidity. The technology is available now to literally optimize for what the majority of users define as great trading execution quality. And we literally optimize for those outcomes, which we'll get into, uh, and take speed out of the equation. So you asked about periodic auctions. What that means is we run auctions a few times per second, which sounds very fast. It takes about a third of, your, of a second to blink your eye. But in electronic trading parlance, it's certainly slow enough to aggregate liquidity and not have any reward mechanism for who was there first. Uh, so that's the material difference between periodic auctions, which, you know, hence their name, run periodically, rather than um, a, you know, what we've kind of referred to here as, as, a, as a price time priority double auction, which effectively says, you know, whenever there's a contra order that can potentially match with you, that match will be created. And to the extent that there's some imbalance, uh, the person that got there first is the one that gets to affect that trade. And at the core of your value proposition is the concept you mentioned of this optimization, this smart market. Um, the auction theory underpinning this was the subject of the 2020 Nobel Prize in economics. And smart markets have been applied in other markets such as logistics and wireless spectrum. Before we dive into how this works in capital markets, can you walk us through how the concept has been used in other industries? The concept of optimizing for specific outcomes is, you know, one Kronos certainly didn't invent uh, math, didn't invent decision science. It's something that's really ingrained in many slower stakes uh, industries. Uh, so for example, the electricity that powers the lights in this room and the water that we're likely drinking, these go through allocation, uh, optimization allocation methodologies that say things like we're going to provide a certain amount of power or people will bid for certain amounts of power across a network subject to certain constraints like some kind of you know city housing project needs to get at least a 20 percent allocation and, the, and and these other elements and the optimization goal uh, what's called an objective function is either maximizing something or minimizing something so it could be maximizing you know the revenue or social welfare across this ecosystem or it could be minimizing cost or something to that effect or maximizing the amount of users that can get some type of allocation. So the challenge is that running optimizations uh, can be computationally intensive, particularly when there are many widgets, many goods that are being transacted, and when there are uh, many, in particular, flexible constraints uh, that can exist in the context of, of an optimization. So in our case, we've brought this technology to operate in much, much, much faster timescales. So to go through an example off the back of your question on like the trucking example on our website, the beauty of this is that not only can optimizations find great solutions for a predefined objective, 
they can also create more efficient allocations of things by offering folks more ability to um, express their constraints. So in the trucking example, I might be happy to, you know, drive across the country, uh, you know, like there's a bidding process. Uh, I'm a trucking company in New York and I'm bidding to, you know, carry cargo from New York to Los Angeles. I'm willing to bid $1.40 a mile to, to drive that freight from one coast to the other. But if I could get an allocation where I'm driving something back from Los Angeles to New York, rather than drive back with an empty truck, maybe I'd be willing to bid more aggressively. So I'm willing to do $1.40 one way, but I'm willing to do $1.21 if I can do both ways, right? So imagine if I could submit two bids into this auction of a one way I'll do $1.40 and a round trip, I would do $1.21. And these are two independent things and I'm indifferent across those outcomes. In trading, it's a powerful tool because trading doesn't allow for this type of behavior. It does in the sense of separate regimes, like I can attempt to do something. And if I can't accomplish that action, I can attempt to do that afterwards. But the market has changed and the variables have changed. And, you know, this is kind of a nuanced thing, but I've I've leaked information, air quotes. Uh, you know, I've told I've told the market certain information about what I attempted to do the first time. And so my second trial is really different and now kind of biased by my first attempt. So having the opportunity to express uh, indifference and substitutes in the context of equities trading is a particularly powerful tool. And these are things that traders and their um, executing algorithms already desire to do, but there aren't tools at the venue layer at the at the exchange layer that allows for that type of flexibility or rather fidelity to be maintained uh you know throughout the stack so an example in equities trading could be something like you know if i if i pay ten dollars for this i'm willing to buy a hundred shares but if i can get it done for nine dollars fifty cents i'm willing to buy a thousand shares right or in the case of kind of substitutability you know I'm happy to buy any of these momentum stocks, right? It doesn't matter which one. I'm happy to buy any of them up to $10 million each. And I want them, you know, fulfilled at the the, the midpoint of the kind of bid-ask spread or better, um, specifying those types of constraints. Now, these are optional tools that are kind of the cream on top um, to a periodic auction, which, as we talked about, takes time, takes speed out of the equation and solves for competing on quality, but it allows folks to express um, specific constraints within the uh, exchange matching engine, which is a novel piece of technology that hasn't existed before. And so in those other asset classes, like you've asked about, whether it's ad tech, whether it's logistics, whether it's airplane flight allocations or airplane allocations at an airport, these are things where this auction format is prevalently used the technology is available now and we've pioneered it to run it in the time scales and the resiliency required for capital markets. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how you're applying it in the capital market space. Looking at that market industry more broadly, the SEC is looking to increase competition for retail order execution. How do you think this will play out and what sort of changes do you expect to see? It's a good question. I'd start by saying our, our, our product is, was designed initially to be an institutional trading product, right? Like 
the 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 beauty of it is and the simplicity is if you survey you know a thousand of the largest institutional investors and traders and ask them what great execution quality means to them the technology is available to encode that in an auctions optimization now that said the sec came out with a piece of regulation not long ago that proposed a new market structure that effectively shape, shakes up uh, the way retail, meaning like, you know, if you and I were to trade, shakes up the interactions that uh, retail trading activity might have with the rest of the market. Currently, that supply chain is relatively captive and, and happens in a very specific way that's, that's particularly segmented from how institutional activity is traded. And the SEC's proposal effectively creates uh, a mechanism where that trading activity is much more open and can take place you know between all different types of market participants and the unique thing that they proposed is a mechanism that functionally looks very 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 much like one chronos so much so that after this rule was proposed we got you know probably 50 phone calls the next day you know asking us about the the kind of convenient and coincidental similarity between what's been proposed and what we have. And so, you know, without commenting on the rule itself, um, what we're really flattered by is you have this regulatory body and the 160 plus economists that work there saying that, you know, we think that periodic auctions that run in the timescales of a few per second, eight to 10 per second, that optimize for users to get what's called price improved is the fair way to trade. Whether you're a retail trader, whether you're a pension fund, whether you're a hedge fund, whether you're a market maker, uh, this is the fair way to transact. And so it's very, very flattering to hear that, you know, the, the proposal that they're recommending is very, very close to what we offer. So um, we'll see how it plays out. These rules usually take quite a bit of time to marinate and sometimes they end up in a format that's not exactly identical to how they were initially passed but we certainly have an offering that can provide a lot of benefit to retail traders and investors and we're excited to see what kind of shape it takes and i'd love to learn more about like you developing and growing the platform so i know launching a new platform can be challenging because you have to have enough liquidity on both sides of the market for the match and the transaction to occur how did you tackle this as you launched the platform so everyone has, everyone as in anyone who's launching a new venue has this chicken and the egg problem. The short answer is you need a lot of order flow and you need a lot of diversity of order flow. The way to do that is to, uh, the way that we feel very passionately to do that is to spend a lot of time with the end user beneficiaries of these mechanisms, right? So our customers, technically, are the banks and brokers. But we spend, uh, myself and our sales team, most of our time with the end users. By end users, I mean the pension funds, the sovereign wealth funds, the institutions, the hedge funds, the asset managers who are, tra who are doing the trading, right? Like those are the folks that are saying, okay, you know, either, either a human or a machine is saying, we need to transition from portfolio A to portfolio B. And in order to do that, we need to sell some stocks and we need to buy some other stocks. 
So how do you do that, right? And so there's this whole workflow that ensues of them sending orders to their broker and going back to what we discussed before in terms of like the broker thoughtfully kind of like taking this parent order and 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 uh, placing it in different parts of the market. So we talk through our mission with these end users and say, look, this is what we're solving for. Like we're solving for speed, but we're also solving for if this is what you all say is great trading execution quality, the technology is here now to literally encode for that. And they ask us, how do you do that? How do you do that so quickly? Like, you know, 10 times per second. And even within that, you know, it's only kind of a portion, uh, you know, about half that that we're actually allocating to this optimization process. And we have some kind of interesting techniques that we use uh, called probabilistic search techniques coupled with a offline uh, machine learning or reinforcement learning element that coach our optimization algorithms to find really fantastic starting points for uh, future auctions. But we talk them through what our mission is, which is we've taken speed out of the equation and we've cultivated, fostered an environment to compete on the quality of liquidity. And most folks really subscribe to this message. And so because of that, they speak with their brokers and it's not like a hard lobby, like send all my flow to one Kronos. It's really like, look, like if you haven't plugged one Kronos into your trading and routing infrastructure yet, please consider it because we think they stand, we, we think they have potential to enhance our trading execution quality. And the neat thing about it is the electronic trading tool set that the banks have, these are you know, systematic tools that don't have human bias embedded in them, right? Like if if a bank goes and plugs us in and it turns out that one Kronos is really terrible or like people aren't getting trades there, then we won't get looks in the future, right? So there's a, there's a kind of convenient element of like plug us in, but the router uh, or the, the tools that exist at the bank will sort out if it's actually like doing what Jesse and team are saying it will do. Um, so... That's been our approach of spending a lot of time with tens and tens and tens and tens of accounts, um, whether that's here or uh, Boston or Chicago or San Francisco or internationally. You know, U.S. equities is one of the largest and most liquid markets in the world, uh, $600 billion that trade every day. And so, you know, even being a small portion of the market or even creating a moderate amount of savings can add up to a good amount of dollars, um, you know, for, for end users. And I saw that you're partnering with the New York Stock Exchange as well. Can you tell us a bit about what you're doing there? Sure. So we've really appreciated our relationship with, uh, with the folks at uh, New York Stock Exchange. Um, it's a fantastic team over there. Uh, we really like everyone and we like their support. And, um, you know, the punchline is, you know, they are certainly sponsors of innovation and um, they've created a unique opportunity for users out there, um, members of their exchange, to uh, route orders directly to One Kronos. So for their customers who wish to, with very, very, very little friction, they can effectively apply a uh, what's called a tag on the orders that they send, and that will shoot straight through to our venue, One Kronos. It's nothing more than that. Uh, it's nothing less than that. And so like the special thing about it is uh, it really lowers the the barrier to entry for accessing our venue. And like one of the big pieces, and this is maybe an important part to your last question of how do you build liquidity 
in a venue? How do you solve this chicken and the egg problem, right? Because you have many folks like, like you know, I'm telling a good story here, but there are certainly others that say, hey, look, like we're interested, but we're going to wait and see how this goes. Or we're going to wait to see when you're a bigger part of the market. If everyone says that, then you have nothing, right? So um, a big part of this is how do you lower the barrier to entry such that it's very easy to onboard, right? And so we've been like very methodical. And this was like part of our COVID story too, of like, um, you know, let's inspect every element of the onboarding process and where can we make it smoother and more efficient. So we can certainly do that for folks connecting to us, but we can't help the fact that when people connect to us directly, they have to sign a contract, they have to set up networking connectivity, there's testing and things that need to be done. So this uh, this route through, through the New York Stock Exchange is very helpful insofar as it's literally plug and play. So it creates a very easy way to access us and you know we're pretty indifferent to whether that end user ultimately connects to us directly or they continue to connect to us through NICE. Makes sense. Switching gears a little bit, I'd love to talk about your role. So at One Kronos, you're the COO. I'd like to hear a little more about what your day-to-day looks like and how you describe your role. Good question, because COO is a quite ambiguous term. It's as ambiguous as uh, business development, I think, um, especially at a small company. So. I mean, I do, I do lots of things and like wherever I can add value. I mean, like ultimately I spend a lot of time with uh, users and prospective users. Um, I also spend a lot of time, um, you know, doing business development and business strategy and a lot of kind of engagement with um, uh, with external outlets or, or press. I work on product. You know, I take out the trash. I order the seltzers in the office. Um, so, you know, happy to do anything and everything like i'm not an engineer um we are mostly an engineering company we have you know we're a small shop and 80 percent of the company are engineers uh you know we're also a deep tech company so we have pretty specialized engineers in what we do so um for me i mean you know there's there's operational elements um but to be honest like most of the time over the past call it year and a half has really been spent on kind of like commercial business development and and strategy. And I'm interested also in hearing your perspective on leadership and culture. So you went from working at a large established bank that probably had a pretty defined culture to a new startup. How did you think about defining the culture there? So culture is something that you have, whether you define it or not. And this is a really good thing that came out of... um, Ben Horowitz wrote a book on this actually, uh, which focuses on this exact point of, therefore the importance of defining your culture. And so, you know, I'm really fortunate and and we're very fortunate that in our management team, we have a really great group of mature people to define a deliberate culture in a way that is empathetic and sensitive and diverse and fits the objectives of our users and our company goals. And so that's much easier to do if you're a small company than if you're a, you know, 30,000 person or 300,000 person company, but it needs to start early, right? If you're a company of 150 or more, like if you have a C culture, good luck getting to an A minus. Right. Like maybe you can get to a B minus unless you do like a serious kind of management overhaul. So, you know, 
one of the most exciting things for me in entrepreneurship is being part of deliberately defining a culture. And every company has their own culture and their own way of kind of achieving their um, goals for themselves and for their customers and for their employees. And um, we're on a really good path. And like, you know, we, you know, we also, we spend a lot of time together, right? Like we work hard, we're a small company, we run lean, but also, you know, like we, you know, we walk and get lunch together most days and we, you know, we go to concerts together and we do like workout classes together. Thank you, Class Bass. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we've done a nice job of like being sensitive to the realities of people's lives and kind of like what happens in the world around us, but also like finding a good transparent organization that supports employees of different levels and different backgrounds and different locations. Um, so I'm very proud of that. Uh, it wasn't me alone. We have a really fantastic team, not just a management team. It takes everyone to define the culture, but that's been a really important part for us. And you also did your MBA at Wharton as an executive MBA, and you mentioned a specific mathematical operations course that you did that taught you some of the core concepts that you're applying here at One Kronos. I'd love to hear your reflections on your MBA, what you found most valuable now that you're almost 10 years out, and if you have any advice for anyone who's pursuing or thinking about pursuing an MBA. Okay, a lot of questions in there. So I, I had a really great experience at Warden. I think, um, you know, everyone goes into it for different reasons. My guess is most people come out of it for with, with kind of like different reasons than what they thought they went into it for. For me, first of all, the, the course that you're referring to was the decision science course uh, that Ziv Catalan taught. And uh, I think it was called, uh, it might have been called Uncertainty or Decision Science and Uncertainty. It effectively was a, was a linear and integer programming class, which is a good segue to the next point of like, Wharton made me prove to myself that I was capable of doing things that I had previously written off. You know, it, it's the it's the kind of like there's different uh, pun intended schools of thought where you know a different school might say, okay, here's the theory. It's important for you to know the theory. You can practice this stuff at home if you want, but it's important that you know the theory and you hear it from the right people. There's other folks, and this is the kind of Wharton mantra where they force you to roll up your sleeves and actually perform the task. And so that 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 turns a microeconomics course into like a challenging like algebra algebra course and it and it turns a course like this into like you know you know you might be doing this in in excel but excel can be a very powerful tool uh, to to learn about um, you know whether it's in the context of finance or whether it's in the context of optimizing for anything else you really have to roll up your sleeves and do it and prove to yourself that you can do it so Credit to uh, to Ziv for a fantastic course and being a, being a um, fantastic professor um, uh, in general. But also, from my experience, I think the best way for me to sum it up is it really gave me the confidence that I can I can learn a lot. I don't want to say most things. I can I can learn many things. And if there's something that I'm not understanding, rather than like focusing my mental cycles on like, oh, am I dumb? Am I am I too slow to like get this? Or is this like too technical a topic? Like maybe this just wasn't explained to me in, in the right way. Or maybe this was fed to me in a way that just doesn't resonate with how I learn. Uh, or maybe I didn't focus on it in the right way, but I'm capable of doing it. So it gave me a lot of hard and soft tools, which really boosted my confidence to tackle many subjects. And in the context of entrepreneurship, like, there's often not a path 
right? Like we're, we're back at the office this morning thinking about some new products and like some of these things are really new to the marketplace and like, how do we approach it? How do we, if we were to deliver it, like how would we deliver it? How would we technologically engineer it? And so having that confidence to, to deal with uncertainty and deal with ambiguity was a really important takeaway for me. In addition to a lot of kind of hard and soft tools that you get in a grad school program. Um, and if all goes according to plan, where do you see One Kronos five years, 10 years from now? So if all goes according to plan, I mean, <laughs> so, you know, I see us as a meaningful part of the market. I see us as a venue that's able to provide over $100 million a year in realized notional price improvement to our customers. That's like a very specific thing that is, um, you know, something that we uh, optimize for in our outcomes. And we want our um, users to, to realize those savings or additional capacity in their trading strategies. I see us in multiple asset classes beyond equities. And there's a number of other like potential applications like in and around capital markets where one Kronos can certainly be valuable. Um, and I also see us as a really fantastic place to, to work and, and build a career. And finally, we like to ask every guest what they enjoy doing outside of their work. So how do you relax outside of the work that you're doing at One Kronos? So I have two thoughts on this. One is one of the reasons that I really like being in the electronic trading space is many of my clients are friends and most of them are way smarter than I am. So I get to hang around with really bright people and people that I enjoy spending time with, right? Like I'm a generalist. I'm not like a dedicated salesperson, but I certainly spend a lot of time with prospective users. And, you know, I, it would be a shame if it were like growing up, I thought of sales and business development as something where like, you know, at best one party likes to be in that meeting. Maybe neither of them want to be there in that meeting. Right. Um, in this case, like, it's just a really unique, special thing that, you know, I get to spend time, you know, on the books um, with people that I really enjoy spending time with. And hopefully they enjoy spending time with me. I'm not sure my, you know, my jokes aren't always so good, uh, but but that's a great plus. And, you know, that certainly is an extracurricular thing. Um, and the other piece, which I think is kind of unique and fits into this, um, this Wharton podcast pretty well, is I play music in a cover band. And uh, we practice at a music studio not far from uh, this very podcast studio. And that band was started uh, at Wharton. And there was a, an icebreaker activity of people revealing, you know, you know, tell us something unique about yourself. And like a handful of people were like, you know, I play the drums and I play the bass and I play this and yada, yada. And a handful of us after the fact got together and we kind of rented a, some studio space in Philadelphia and we quote unquote jammed. I think we circulated like three or four sublime songs or something ahead of time. And we all showed up and it sounded, you know, pretty goofy at first. But that, you know, that that was 2014 time frame. And so we still play, you know, number of times per year. And uh, there's two two of us Wharton alum out of the five in, in our band. And um, that's a really fun activity, which is uh, a nice creative outlet, kind of separate and independent from the workday. Where does the band play nowadays? We usually play at clubs downtown. Midtown is kind of a, a no-fly zone for us. Um, and also, it, it's just a lot more fun to play, you know, Greenwich Village, East Village, Lower East Side. There's 
some really fantastic historic venues and clubs down there and they're they're happy to have a band as long as you can bring a decent crowd and so you know when you play cover songs you get away with murder you know you can you can get a decent crowd if you're playing you know sublime or smashing pumpkins or better than ezra or jimmy world or one of those so feel free to come out and check us out you have to tell us what you're called if you want us to come visit that's true we are called blindfolds five so feel free to check us out yeah nothing booked right now but happy to have you thanks for joining us on the podcast it's been really great to talk to you and to learn more about one Kronos. awesome thanks so much for having me kaylee Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria, and until next time, this is your host, Kaylee Costello.